this week on the Backtable podcast. I'm happy to see those, those manuscripts, you know, and those, those publications that, that clearly shows the, the benefit of, the, uh, of this device. And, and I'm pretty sure, you know, because I don't know how much you pay for those devices, but uh, the, the price we pay for the device, you know, I'm pretty sure that it's, it's cost effective. As you said, you know, just to put the patient on the table, it costs a lot. And I remember years ago when the, the first drug-coded stent uh, went on the market. I, oh, I don't know if you remember how much it cost, but uh, uh, in, in my hospital, they, they cost 3000 to 4000 bucks a, a stent. And, and do you know how much we pay for that now? You know, for, for, for the latest version of drug-coded uh, stent, uh, for a coronary-coded uh, stent, now it's 176 Canadian dollars, just crazy, crazy. Well, well, hope to see the same thing with the drug-eluting balloon uh, market. I don't know, maybe not. The volume is not there. Sure, sure. <laughs> not yet, not yet. There's a lot of hemodialysis <laughs> access out there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you are a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast better, and we'll do our best to make that happen. The New England Journal of Medicine has published big news for AV fistula patients. Learn more about the IMPACT AV Access Trial to see how the IMPACT AV drug coloder balloon can affect reintervention rates for patients with kidney disease. Visit Medtronic.com slash AVDCB for more information. Today, we're trying something new with the format. The podcast today is going to revolve around a recent paper in March's edition of JVIR, so 2021. Uh, the title of the paper, which we will definitely link to in our show notes, is Safety and Efficacy of Paclitaxel Eluting Balloon Angioplasty for dysfunctional hemodialysis access, a randomized trial comparing with angioplasty alone. And don't feel like you guys have to remember to type it out. We'll make sure we include it in our show notes. Uh, we have with us today, one of the authors of the paper, Dr. Eric Taras. Eric is gonna help us unpack this article for you, our audience. Eric, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Yes, of course. All right. so. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, um, where your practice is, and a little bit about your practice in general. Well, uh, I graduated from medical school at uh, Laval University in Quebec City, and then I complete my residency in diagnostic radiology at the University of Montreal, and my fellowship in interventional radiology at the Institut Gustave Roussier, which is in France. Then I start my practice at the Hôtel Dieu of Montreal, in Montreal. Uh, that hospital merged with two other uh, medical centers. Hôpital uh, Notre-Dame and Hôpital Saint-Luc in Montreal. Uh, that was in 1996. And uh, we then moved into a new building almost four years ago now. And that's a, it's a very nice compound. Nice. So how long have you been practicing IR in total since you've been out fellowship and everything? Well, it's clo close to 30 years now. 30 years. Very nice. Three decades under your belt. All right. So we're dealing with a guy. So we're dealing with a guy who knows what he's talking about. All right. So how about your current practice? I mean, the papers on hemodialysis access or do you do a lot of dialysis access or is that just one component of like, a, you know, broad, uh, well-rounded IR practice? Well, it's only one, one component of our practice. Uh, we, we have a very diversified practice. Uh, 
with uh, oncology, hepatobiliary and urinary work, and also peripheral arterial disease, vascular malformation, and all the kind of embolization. Personally, I have a special interest in peripheral uh, arterial disease and adrenal venous sampling and pulmonary arterial venous malformation. Okay. All right. Are you guys an HHT center? Yes, we do. Excellent. All right. So this paper, why did you want to take this paper on? What was the impetus behind the paper? Um, and what kind of got you into this? Uh, if I remember from the paper correctly, the, the whole process started around 2014. Yes, you're right. Uh, actually, well, a, a few years ago when we started using the drug-coated balloon for peripheral arterial disease, we had a very good experience with the PESIO-18 Lux from Biotronic. And that was even before the, the Biolux uh, P1 publication in uh, 2015. Uh, I even remember a case, a, a patient who had numerous angioplasties and stent insertion and even a bypass that get occluded. And who always came back for his stenosis. The last time she came with rest pain again, we decided to treat this diffuse intrastentary stenosis with, uh, involving the whole length of the femoral popliteal artery with the Paseolux DCP. At that time, we used three long DCB, but we, we did not have enough DCB to cover the whole length of the lesion. So it's a very, very long one. A few months later, the patient came back again with rest pain again. Uh, however, the angiogram then demonstrated the restenosis only involved a segment that were not treated by the drug-coded balloon. And that was very striking for us. So without that, this drug-coded balloon was probably very effective. At that time, nobody was using a drug-coded balloon to treat hemodialysis access. And I remember that many believe that this balloon would not be effective in vain. However, we, we thought that it was worth trying because the cause of restenosis, uh, intimilopoplasia, is the same process in either arterial or venous angioplasty. So your experience in peripheral arterial disease led you to, to have the hypothesis that this may be beneficial in hemodialysis and, and venous disease. Did you guys actually transition your clinical practice to reflect treating with drug-coated balloons before the paper, or did you guys just begin working on the write-up for the paper? Or not the write-up for the paper, but setting the stage for the paper? Well, the, the, the publication uh, about the, the Paseo Lux, uh, the Paseo 18 Lux uh, weren't published uh, when we started with the, the AV. And so it was based on our, uh, on our experience, personal experience. Uh, you know, we, we had, we had patient, uh, uh, successful cases. So we, we say, we, we, we thought that it would be nice to, to, to use that in another setting. And, and the one what, which was the most obvious, you know, uh, was the, uh, AV fistula because we had so many stenosis and patient all that as everywhere, you know, uh, a patient who come back and come back and come back. And we said, well, what, well, that's a good setting for that. And we thought that we need, with all those restenosis, you know, that the trial would probably be easier and faster to do because, you know, the most, the more event you have, the, the best it is, you know, so to have the, uh, a result faster, but actually it took uh, four, four years anyway. I see. So in putting together this paper, I've never put together a randomized trial. And I imagine there are a lot of our listeners out there who haven't either. What was the biggest hurdle in setting up the trial and executing the trial from your perspective? Well, the first thing you, you, you do when you want to do such a study is to finance it. <laughs> first, hence, we, we, we talked to Biotronic about our plan to do this study with them because we were convinced that their drug-coated balloon were effective, at least in the arterial system, based on our experience in the SFA. Biotronic accepted to fund the study uh, that we designed as a multi-center trial because such a study cannot be performed in a single center. Organizing a, a multi-center like this, uh, this one uh, with a limited budget required a lot of collaboration, devotion from the participating center and, and from the core lab also. 
and I can say that I've been really lucky with my uh, all my all my colleagues uh, 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 as well as my collaborator from the True Medical Center of the Shim and well as from the two other participating center made a great job to to help me a lot to complete the study. I'm very grateful to them. The the, the biggest hurdle uh, for 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 the study is always enrollment. Enrollment is always slower than what you expect it to be. It's fast initially when you enroll all the patients that regularly regularly come back for the treatment of the heuristic hemodialysis access. But then the enrollment starts to slow as this patient cannot be enrolled more than once. So enrollment uh, was always impaired uh, by uh, exclusion criteria and among them by the maximum drachoid balloon diameter of 7 millimeter, which did not allow for, to, to treat a vessel with a greater reference diameter. Given the limited enrollment rate and the short shelf life of the drug-coated balloon, we also had to, to keep only one set of drug-coated balloon for all centers. And this meant that we had to closely coordinate the interventions uh, between sites. I see. So if I heard you correctly, uh, finance participation with uh, all the centers, enrollment, and then just the technical, the nuts and bolts of running the study in terms of just keeping balloons on the shelf. Yes, well, we that 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 seems easy, but there are so many hurdles on boards on the road, so you can't imagine. So, thinking about the paper broadly, what was the primary goal, or what did you really want to accomplish when you set out on uh, this study? Well, in the beginning, and when we designed the study, we did not know whether the drug or the balloon would be effective or not at, at all uh, in hemodialysis access. So, so, we thought that we could probably answer the question faster and with less patient. By using a continuous angiographic variable, the Littleman loss, which we thought would be more sensitive to the anti-restenotic effect of drug-coated balloon than a discontinuous clinical variable such as the need for a reintervention. Clinical events after a drug, the drug-coated balloon use um, may also be influenced by other variables such as the appearance of a new lesion and by the fact that restenosis may not be associated with symptom unless the process is well advanced. This is the reason why we choose uh, the Littleman loss as the primary endpoint of the study. However, it turns out that in the end, it was a clinical endpoint which appeared to be significantly improved in our study. So will you go back and just define what exactly late lumen loss is for our audience? Well, late lumen loss is the loss of a yeah, diameter that you have at follow-up. It's uh, actually, if you want it, strictly speaking, you have to, you say that it's the, the, the minimum lumen diameter after the intervention, minus the minimum lumen diameter as follow-up. So this is the amount. Of, so, so the greater the amount, the, the more you have restenosis and the, the, the worse it is. All right. So just summarizing uh, for me and some of the other uh, slow followers out there, small number on late lumen loss, good. Big number, bad. Like be, big number meaning like you've had more late lumen loss. Exactly. Even though it, it's impossible to, to do this, but I thought a, a good thought experiment would be if you could go back and change anything about your study from design to enrollment to participation or including centers, would you, knowing about the results now, would you have done anything different on the front end to uh, change the study, how it was set up or how you guys set off to tackling this challenge? Well, retrospectively, without knowing the, res the study results, I think we, we would not have changed uh, the design, the way we designed it uh, and we would design it about the same way. Maybe except for the last observation carried forward imputation of the angiographic variable uh, when the patient has an intercurrent intervention, maybe a more severe way of angiographic data imputation should have been used in case of missing data at six months because of early intervention. And we'll probably talk about that later. 
For sure. We will definitely get into that. Um, we won't, won't spoil that part uh, that will, but in, when we get to this discussion section, for sure. All right. So let's talk about the intervention and follow-up section of the paper. One thing that I wanted to touch on in terms of intervention, I noticed that all diagnostic uh, fistulograms and shuntograms were done with originally a stick at the brachial artery to do your diagnostic angiography. Is that right? Yes, yes. This is the way we generally teach our fellow to do a fistogram before planning for an intervention. Uh, it has the advantage of leaving the drainage vein untouched without spasm that may mimic a lesion. Uh, it also allows to plan for a best venous puncture to site to, to dilate the stenosis. Uh, we puncture the brachial artery in a retrograde approach, uh, insert the tree French dilator to do the angiogram, and then we find, if we find a, a significant lesion that can be treated, uh, we puncture the vein in either in integrate or in a retrograde approach to have the access to dilate the lesion. It's true that this step can sometimes be skipped when, when you have a Doppler before henna, or when it's pretty clear when the lesion is by physical examination of the embodialysis axis. Yeah, so my point, I guess, originally was this was not something just set up for the study. This was like a, a, this mirrored gels clinical practice. Yes, it is. Okay. And... One of the things that um, I wanted to highlight for the audience in terms of uh, the technique is that if uh, a lesion was found on angiography, then, well, I'll just let you explain it. So how were those lesions treated in both the control and the uh, drug-eluting balloon groups? In the study, we decided that all patients would have a high pressure balloon angioplasty first because using either the drug-coated uh, or the plain PTA balloon, this balloon, uh, the drug-coated balloon and, uh, you know, the usable balloon are not strong enough to dilate most AV fistula stenosis that are generally, generally very resistant. Uh, this drug-coated balloon is like a drug applicator and, and was always used after a, a high-pressure angioplasty. So we decided to use the same low-pressure balloon without drug, you know, the PESI-18 in the control arm, so that both arms of the study would have been treated the same way exactly Except that, the, except for the drug that was present only on the low pressure balloon in the DCB arm. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to highlight that technique for um, people who might not be as familiar with drug eluting balloons. Is that everyone got plain old balloon angioplasty? And I noticed in the paper you tried to get complete effacement of the waste. Did you then take a picture of the uh, after angioplasty, or do you do plain old balloon angioplasty and then followed directly by drug coated balloon? Yeah, we do take a snapshot, but actually it didn't change anything for, for, for the study because, it, you know, uh, after we, uh, we, we, we dilate with the, uh, then we decide whether we randomize the patient or not. Of course, if we had a very bad, uh, you know, uh, result, we, we could exclude the patient because the patient wasn't yet randomized in, in the study, you know, but this, this actually didn't happen in the study. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the relationship between whatever the patient was being referred for that prompted the angiography in the first place versus what you found on angiography. And, and the example that I kind of came up with was that if a patient was referred for, say, prolonged bleeding, uh, which would indicate like a venous outflow stenosis, and then you do your diagnostic angio and you find an inflow lesion and an outflow lesion, how are those kind of things teased apart in the study and I just was curious if like a juxtaarterial segment stenosis was also included when maybe the patient was referred for outflow, you know, clinical issue. Well, in the study, as well as in our own practice, we'll always treat the lesion that were the most likely to be responsible for, for the symptoms. So when it wasn't 
clear which lesion was a culprit one. We, we treat both all lesions that were greater than 50% in diameter and all lesions are then included in the study. But if the patient clearly has an outflow related symptom, uh, we only treat the outflow lesion. Uh, this is, this is the, the way we also treat hemodialysis access in our everyday practice. Okay. Yeah, that's one thing I wanted to drill down on that, that the actual clinical implications and the angiography findings, those two were uh, linked in the paper and that that was a mirror of like, I think how most people practice, uh, you know, their clinical hemodialysis maintenance. So digging a little bit to the details on the uh, drug eluting balloon, was there anything special regarding this balloon? I'll let you talk about some of the special features of the balloon, particularly the uh, excipient. Well, the BASEO-18 LUX is a paclitaxel code version of the BASEO-18, which is a semi-compliant balloon, which it's not a high-pressure balloon. It's coated with a, a sugar-like paclitaxel coating that looks very similar to the Admiral Impact balloon for those from Medtronic. Uh, and uh, you have to be careful not to strip the drug through the sheet and not to spend too much time with the balloon into the circulation before inflating it at the lesion site. This drugwood balloon was designed for an infrainguinal lesion and was proven to be effective in the Biolux P1 study published in 2015 after we started enrolling patients in, in this study. The plexitaxel concentration of the balloon is 3 microgram per milli, square millimeter and the shortest shaft length is 90 centimeters. It's also available in a 130 centimeter long, but unfortunately this is not very practical for to treat hemodialysis access. So this balloon, the Depasio 18 Lux, is an over-the-wire balloon. It is on an O18 platform, uh, while the high-pressure balloon that we regularly use uh, for hemodialysis access uh, is the Mustang from Boston Scientific, which is on an O35 platform. So either O18 wire had to be used at first, or we had to change the O35 wire for O18 after the dilation with the high-pressure balloon. What did most people do? Did most people just go in with the 035 system and then exchange for the 018 wires? Well, if it's pretty straight, we can use the 018 wire uh, for the whole procedure and you can put the, the, the Mustang over the 018 because mm -hmm. you don't have, then there's no problem about tracking and so on and so on. But if, if there's a loop or it's very tight and so on, so on, it's, it's, it might be better to use the 035 and then exchange for the 018. Fair. So one of the things I wanted to get out of the way early uh, was one of the endpoints of the study um, that I think was uh, tacked on in the middle of the study was the um, paclitaxel late mortality issue. Can you speak to that a little bit and uh, whether or not your study shed any light on uh, to that issue? Well, mortality at 12 months was one of the planned safety endpoints of the study. Uh, given this controversy about paclitaxel code device and mortality, we we add an amendment to the protocol so to have a late mortality assessment, which was until July 2019, as you could see in the, in the article. And that, that wasn't planned in the initial study design, but there was no significant difference between both time points, either at, until July 2019 and, and until uh, or at one year follow-up. But uh, of course, the, the number of patients enrolled in the, in the study is, is, not, uh, is not long. And, and you have also to keep in mind that only half of the patient received a drug-coated balloon, so it's only 60, 60 patients. Sure, sure, fair. Going to uh, some other endpoints of the study, you broadly broke it down in the paper into angiographic endpoints, uh, flow, and then clinical endpoints. We already talked about late lumen loss, but for angiography, um, can you talk about how stenosis was calculated? And I'm curious as to whether or not when stenosis was calculated, 
was that something that was blinded and was calculated in retrospect or was it calculated as the operator was on the table and he made a judgment call as to the degree of stenosis based on just his, you know, evaluation of the angiography lifetime? Well, the, the percentage diameter reduction was calculated on quantitative angiography by uh, the independent core lab, which has based in uh, the uh, Montreal Arts Institute. And this uh, assessment was made uh, in a blind manner. And I mean, the core lab wasn't aware of the, uh, of the treatment group. Actually, the nephrologist and the patient weren't uh, aware of the treatment group. Actually, the, the only person who were aware of the treatment group were the, the research nurse and, and the, the, the physician performing the, the intervention. I see. So whenever the physician um, was making decision to uh, whether treat or not and determining the degree of stenosis, that wasn't actually the stenosis that was reported. There was independently, those images were being sent off and, and like you said, evaluated and measured in the core lab. Exact. Okay. Will you define uh, one of the terms that's in the paper, um, intercurrent angiography? Intercurrent angiography was any angiography that was performed before a reintervention that occurred before the planned six-month follow-up. This angiography work performed in patients with early symptomatic restenosis that, that require reinterventions. So for the follow-up, basically, once you were treated, everyone was assigned a six-month follow-up. And if you presented with, you know, say, prolonged bleeding or any kind of issue with your um, dialysis access, then, then that was reported as intercurrent angiography. Exact, exact. And and if we had to do a, a, uh, an angiography because we suspect that the, there was a restenosis and actually that, that the, there wasn't any restenosis, then the, the original six-month follow-up was, uh, was done as, as originally scheduled. And I've forgotten, were any of the patients, did it count for intercurrent angiography if they presented with a thrombosed fistula or graft? No, well, that was an exclusion criteria. We, we didn't okay. enroll patient with tr thrombosed fistula. Okay. But well, so I guess that's what I was getting at. So like you could be enrolled, but if you're fistula thrombosed, then that was grounds for exclusion from the remainder of the study. Well, a patient are not excluded from the study. They, they participate, uh, you know, once you're randomized, you, you stay in the study. So if the patient has an occlusion, it's pretty easy, you know, that the, the, the percentage, the stenosis is 100%, the minimum, the minimum lumen diameter is zero. The lumen loss is the minimum lumen diameter after the, the angioplasty. So it's pretty easy. Okay. All right. So for intercurrent, for intercurrent angiography, so if somebody did, if they presented with thrombosis like three months after they were randomized, then that was included in the study. Yes, of course. Okay. Sorry. And can you talk about uh, how flow was measured and some of the hiccups were, that were involved in terms of determining of uh, fistular graft flow? Well, for, 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 the, for the flow, it's only the transcendent flow measurement. I don't know if you are, you're used with that, you know, but I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not uh, going to the uh, dialysis unit, uh, you know, to see what, how they do that. But I know that, uh, what I know is that uh, while the patient is in dialysis unit uh, and connect to the dialysis pump, they, they invert the, the arterial and the venous line, and then they inject saline in the arterial line and aspirate by the venous line. So the saline injection dilutes the blood protein concentration, which decreases the speed of ultrasound transmission to blood. And this decrease in speed of sound transmission can be measured in the venous line. So a higher blood dilution with saline injection means a lower flow in the hemodialysis axis and vice versa. Uh, so the transcendent uh, dilution technique is now routinely used in most dialysis centers uh, to monitor hemodialysis flow and, uh, and hence to detect stenosis. 
Right. And were there any issues in terms of um, having patients getting measured for their flow um, portion of the study, like in it, gathering that information? Yeah, well, given that there were many sites, uh, that was something which was diffi difficult to standardize. And uh, so as you could see in the, in, in the, in the article, you know, there, there were lots of missing data with time. Right, right. So moving on to clinical endpoints, will you uh, define the terms and kind of uh, elaborate on target lesion failure, circuit lesion failure, and what constituted a failure in general? Well, well, first we have to talk about the definition of hemodialysis failure, you know, whether it's a circuit lesion failure or target lesion failure. The, the, the hemodialysis failure was a composite endpoint of either hemodialysis thrombosis, dialysis catheter insertion, or hemodialysis access intervention, either surgical or endovascular. So when the hemodialysis failure was due to a treated lesion, we talk about the target lesion failure. And when it was due to any lesion in the hemodialysis access circuit, including the treated lesion, we talk about the circuit lesion failure. Hence, the hemodialysis circuit failure rate is always higher than the hemodialysis target lesion failure rate. I see. One of the things that I had trouble uh, teasing apart was circuit lesion failure when you had a target lesion, but also another lesion. Which, wh where did those patients fall in? Did, were they included in both target lesion failure and circuit lesion failure? Well, uh, the difference between target lesion failure and uh, circuit lesion failure is only relevant uh, as for the endpoint of reintervention, and I would say even endovascular intervention. Because when you are doing an endovascular intervention, you can see whether the lesion is due that the the the, the, the restenosis is it due to a new lesion or is it due to the lesion that has been treated? So if it's if it's due to the lesion that has been treated, so then you say the target lesion failure. If it's another lesion, you know, so then we treat the patient and the patient could come back uh, for the six month follow up. And then we could see whether the, the, the target lesion, you know, is what does what it look like? So, so it's possible to make the difference, you know, whether, whether it's a, uh, it's a circuit uh, access failure or, or if it's a, a, a target lesion failure. So I can see the difference when it's clear cut and, and you're doing your official gram and you see either uh, your target lesion, which you've known from your, your prior angiography or it's a, or if it's a different lesion, but were there ever situations where you did angiography and you saw both your target lesion stenosis and then a new area of stenosis? And then and it was hard to clinically tell which one, which was which. Do you know what I mean? For what I remember, I saw it was almost when, when we have, when we have multiple lesion, uh, mo most often it was the, uh, the lesion was the, uh, the, the recurrent, the recurrent, the, it was a wrist stenosis from the from the target lesion. Clinically, clinically, it's very easy because, uh, um, I mean, if you have an occlusion, if you have a thrombosis, if you have to put a, a, a dialysis catheter, or if you have to do a, you redo a new fistula, you know, we're always talking about circuit lesion, uh, circuit access uh, uh, lesion, because you, it's, it's impossible to differentiate, you know, in, in any, in any situation that you, you, you cannot be certain that it's due to another lesion, you always consider that it's due to the target lesion. Okay, that's fair. So let's then dig in a little bit to the results, both the angiographic results and the clinical results. Broadly speaking, can you uh, summarize some of the uh, angiogram results? Well, uh, for the uh, angiographic uh, result, uh, as you can see, you know, they, they were not significantly different between both groups, except for the binary and the rate and for the 
the percentage stenos and, uh, and that was that and uh, you know if you look at the at the binary stenosis rate you know you see it was 56.5 percent in the deb group and it was 81.1 uh, percent uh, in the uh, in the plate PTA group, but the minimum lumen diameter, the late lumen loss, you know, they were not statistically different between both groups. Even though they weren't statistically different, can you speak to uh, any trends? Yes, there was a trend. Of course, the, the trend was uh, that, that there was an advantage to, uh, to the drug-coated balloon. I think that, and we'll, we'll talk about that maybe a little later, but I think that the main problem was the handling of the missing data because of the intercurrent angiographies. I feel like it's it's a good of a time as any to discuss about that because that was one of the things of the paper that jumped out to me, um, how the paper favored basically angiographic results of just plain old balloon angioplasty. So can you first kind of define the problem for the audience and then we'll talk about how that played out in the study? Yes, 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 of course. Uh, when a intervention uh, need to be performed because the scheduled six-month follow-up, uh, before the six-month uh, follow-up examination, uh, you're not able to assess what the stenos would look like at six months if that lesion would have not been treated again. So to palliate to this missing data, we, we use the last observation carried forward method of imputation of the, the missing variable in our study design. Uh, the angiographic result of the intercurrent angiographies were then report as if they had occurred at six months. The, the main problem with all angiographic variable in our study was that the greater number of intercurrent angiographies that were performed due to symptomatic restenosis in the plain PTA group in comparison with the drug-coded uh, balloon group, but that 49% of the patient in the plain PTA group had an intercurrent angiography versus only 21% in the, uh, the, the drug-eluting balloon group. So unfortunately, this method of missing data imputation prevent uh, assessment of further deterioration and did not account for the, the earlier appearance of the restenosis and, and, and hence underestimate the effectiveness of the drug-coded balloon. So I just want to highlight again for our audience, basically, if somebody came, uh, if a patient presented for intercurrent angiography uh, before the six-month routine follow-up, then whatever degree of stenosis, which was found, say, at three months, was counted as their six-month follow-up. Well, it's not exactly that. Okay. If there's no, if we do, if we didn't do any intervention on the, on the target lesion, then the patient was rescheduled for a six month follow-up. Okay. So it was only if we had to do a re-intervention on, on the lesion, because then of course you cannot, you know, once you re-intervene on, on the lesion, you cannot say what it would have, what would, what it would have looked like at six months. Right. I, I think I understand. So aside, excluding the patients who you did angiography for, and then there was no lesion, but if anything that was um, uh, hemo, hemodynamically significant, then whatever you found at three months um, at intercurrent angiography was then rolled into the calculation for their six-month routine follow-up. Exactly. And, and so it was biased towards whichever group, and in this case, it happened to be the control group of uh, plain old balloon angioplasty. So it was biased towards whatever group had more intercurrent angiography. Yeah, because you don't give time to, to let the, the, the lesion to get worse and worse and worse. You know, if you have a reintervention at three months, you know, and the minimum lumen diameter is, let's say, two millimeter, Maybe it would have been an occlusion at six months, you know. So instead of, of having an occlusion, you know, uh, or a zero uh, minimum lumen diameter or, uh, you know, the maximum late lumen loss, so you end up with something which is not as bad as what it would have been 
if we would have left it until six months. For sure. Just as a reminder to the audience, I know you mentioned the percentages, but which percentage of the uh, plane PTA um, had intercurrent angiography versus the uh, drug-eluting balloon? Did you say it was like 49 versus? 21. 49. So over double of the planal balloon angioplasty presented earlier for a re-intervention. Exactly. Okay. So whenever, whenever I asked you in the beginning about if there is anything that you could have changed with the setup of the paper, one of the things that I was thinking that jumped out to me whenever I read the paper was that would it have been helpful to have a shorter interval follow-up, say at three months to capture some patients who didn't make it to their six-month follow-up of routine angiography? Well, it's very difficult to, to time, you know, when, uh, when it's going to be, you know, you, you always know it uh, afterwards, you know. <laughs> I know, but that was, that was the, that was the crux of the question. Like in, in hindsight, if you could, if you had the time machine, would you, would you have changed it? Um, I get it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you cannot do that, you know, but uh, yes, maybe, 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 uh, it's difficult. But when you look at the, uh, you know, at the Kepler mayor, you, you, you can see, you know, that it starts around three months, you know. So it may, may, maybe it would have been better four months. I don't know, you know, four or five, but it's difficult. But you never do that before. And maybe, maybe there's another way we could have done that. You know, maybe we should have used a more uh, severe way of, of imputation. Instead of, of, of imputation, you know, the, 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 the minimum the lumen diameter uh, at, at uh, you know, at the intercurrent in giraffe, maybe we should have said that, you know, if, it's, uh, if the patient has a re-intervention, then we can say that, you know, the minimum lumen diameter was uh, zero, you know, or the lumen loss was uh, equivalent to the, to the minimum lumen diameter after the intervention, which is very severe. And then of course, then it will be very, very, uh, you know, but that's, you can skew that, you know, that the result by, by the, the, the way you impute you do the imputation, but yes, we could have been more severe uh, for, for the, for the restenosis. And you'll have to pardon my ignorance about uh, setting up study design. Is that a decision that you have to make ahead of time or is that yes. a decision? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> like, like everything else, you know, yes. you, you cannot do. We change some, as you, as you see, there's a, some, some thing that we changed during, and uh, we talk about, you know, the, the late mortality assessment, you know, that was made afterwards, you know, but the, everything else is, is pre-specified in the study, you know. Got it. Got it. So clinically, can you speak? broadly about uh, what results were found for the clinical endpoints? Well, uh, well, first we, we talk about the hemodialysis access failure as, uh, as being a composite endpoint of hemodialysis access thrombosis, dialysis accelerator insertion, or hemodialysis access intervention, surgical or endovascular. So just remember that the number in our study at 12 months, the target lesion access failure in the drug-coated balloon was 33%, while it was 62% in the PTA group. The circuit access failure was at 45% in the drug-coated balloon, while it was 67% in the plain PTA group. Most circuit failure are due to target lesion failure, as we already said, you know, to which you also add hemodialysis access failure due to new lesion. Hence, the, the improvement in circuit failure is mainly due to the improvement in, the, in target lesion failure rate. In addition, you, it, it, it is also possible that the treatment of less important lesion that were very close to the target lesion and that were also covered by the drug or the balloon may have had an effect on the appearance of, of, the, uh, of new lesion. In fact, new lesion are often pre-existing lesion that were not important initially, but that progress with time. 
That's interesting. So on the original angiography, there were lesions that were, you know, determined to be uh, non-flow limiting. And on subsequent angiography, oftentimes, or I don't want to say oftentimes, sometimes those lesions are the ones that uh, also moved on to become uh, flow limiting lesions. Yeah, the new lesion. Well, it's only a limited number of patients with new lesion majority, you know, have, uh, you know, have, have a restinals of the original well, as you, as you see in your everyday practice, actually. I just thought of a, a question that I didn't have originally in the outline. Was there any consideration to collaterals? Um, like when you see collaterals, was that, uh, I, I guess in, I'm thinking about my clinical practice. Whenever I see collaterals, that oftentimes causes me to give a, a closer look to anything that's just downstream. Um, was there any consideration to collaterals or collateral evaluation? Or was that just kind of built into the practice of trying to determine which lesions were flow limiting? Yes, of course. Uh, the the operator always have a look at the collateral. When when you have multiple lesion and you just have to decide which one is the most uh, imp, the more the more important, so then you can decide on on, on uh, you know on looking at where is the collateral. You know, is, is it uh, downstream or upstream? Yeah, we, we we do that in clinically, but that's not something we we use so often actually. Okay, that's fair. So going back to the clinical endpoints, I wanted to talk about timing. As and, and we kind of mentioned it already when we we're talking about the angiographic uh, results, but can you speak to how uh, drug eluding balloons may increase the time between interventions? Well, we, we did not calculate the mean time between interventions, but we did calculate the mean time between the initial intervention and the target lesion failure. The vast majority of hemodialysis access failure, I would say 90% in this study, were due to the need for endovascular reintervention. So given that the mean time between the initial intervention uh, and target lesion failure uh, were 218 days in the plain PTA group and 294 days in the DCB group, we can say that uh, the use of tracodoglund delayed the need for a reintervention by more than three months. Okay. Yeah. So 294 minus subtracting from 218. So about seven, so about 75 days or so. So after you found this finding of uh, 75 days or so uh, between drug-coated balloons and plain balloon angioplasty, was that in line with what you were expecting based on other papers that had come out in the interval about drug-coated balloons or was, or was this a surprise to you? Yes, it was a, it was a surprise because we didn't expect it to be so, uh, so, uh, so important. Actually, we, we expected that we could see a signal by the, uh, on the angiographic endpoint and that we may not have a you know, significant difference in the clinical uh, endpoint. And actually, that was the opposite. And, and that uh, actually, yes, it surprised us, you know, and, uh, because it, the, uh, the clinical endpoint were clearly, you know, better in, in the drug with the balloon than in the plain PTU group. You know, and we didn't expect that. We, we expected that, you know, we would have a, a, a smaller late lumen loss, you know, that the, the percentage stenosis would be better, you know, in the drug-coated balloon and so on. But, but we don't expect, you know, that would be the opposite uh, completely. I guess knowing that now, it, it seems like uh, whenever you guys were setting up the study, because this clinical endpoint was uh, surprising, that to me, it, the, the clinical endpoint is so much more important than late lumen loss. The fact that you can extend um, potential reintervention rates for, you know, one month, two months. And I, I think like the Lutonics trial showed something up to four months. So the, this to me was one of the main takeaways from the paper, but I just wanted to get your opinion on how important you thought this was and 
if you thought this was maybe one of the more significant findings of the study. Oh, yes, of course. You know, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about it, earlier, we, we, we talk about, you know, why we choose rhythm and loss, but that was only because we thought we would be able to show a difference between group with less patients, you know, and then if you see that as a signal, so then you can, uh, you know, enroll more patients, do another uh, study and so on and so on. You don't start with a huge uh, study, you know, if you, you don't have any idea of whether it's working or not, you know, so that's the reason why we use the, because we thought that the angiographic endpoint would be more sensitive, you know, but of course for us also, you know, I think it's, it's much better, you know, the, 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 the clinical endpoint are the one which are the most important, the angiographic endpoint of our secondary. So, uh, so we're very happy to see that, uh, even though the, the angiographic endpoint weren't as significant, that we had very good results for, for the clinical endpoint. So I, I think for some neophytes, whenever you read uh, a research paper and you see something as significant that it gets found in the secondary endpoint, and then you're reading about the primary endpoint of something like, like lumen loss, I, I guess I think it's, it's sometimes lost about how important the finding is. And I think if you don't know exactly how research papers are set up and, and kind of the rules of the research paper that you you may brush a study off a little bit because you're like, oh, they didn't achieve their primary endpoint of statistical significance. But really, like the meat of it is the clinical endpoint. Yes, yes, of course. But, you you know, it's always the same. When you do, when you set up a study, you have to define what are the primary and secondary endpoint because the also for the uh, for the power of the study is not the same. If you set up a study to to detect you know a clinical endpoint, you will need more much more patients. If you set up a, a study for the uh, to show a difference in late lumen loss, you will need more less patient. So sometimes you you can end up with uh, with, with a study with less patient and 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 you and you could still sh- show a significant difference in uh, in a clinical endpoint. But that was a secondary endpoint and to to the certain extent that you know. Methodologists don't like that very much because they always say, you know, that you could have been lucky also, you know, because you could find something that you had not as many chances to, to show that. Uh, but of course, you know, the, the difference between group is so, is so great that I think it's a, it's a, it's a very positive study. Agreed. Big picture wise, from the beginning of the study, which you spoke about was in 2014 and the completion of the study was in 2019, then it was published in 2020. How do you feel like this paper fits into the uh, growing body of evidence suggesting that drug-eluting balloons fit into the practice of hemodialysis access? Well, uh, although there are some negative studies about the use of a drug-coated balloon in the hemodialysis access in the literature, most study uh, as this one uh, and, uh, and the, uh, the impact AV access study are positive. And for us, it's very clear that there are commercially available drug-coated balloons that are very effective in preventing restenosis after hemodialysis access angioplasty. Wasn't it just one study that reported a negative outcome with the drug-eluting balloons, and then there was one study that said really no difference, but most, it, it, you can correct me if I'm wrong, other studies have all re- reported a, a positive impact. Um, well, no just, yeah, yeah. M- m- most studies have shown a positive result. Some study have shown uh, no no difference, and uh, I, I, if I remember, there was even a, a, a study published in a Scandinavian uh, 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 journal that showed a worse uh, result in uh, in the drug coated balloon. But that, that that was with 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 few few patients, you know. So I, I would say that either most study shows either that there's a benefit of using the drug coated balloon, or that maybe the power of the study was not enough to to demonstrate the effectiveness of the drug coated balloon. But I, I also to I have I need also to say that the 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 effect size of the uh, drug of the balloon to prevent stenosis is not the same in all studies. You know, 
the one that we see in this study and the one that we see also in the impact AV access study is, is pretty much uh, higher than the one that we could see in the Lutonic study, you know, which shows positive uh, uh, finding, you know, but you know, it's not very strong, you know, it's, uh, you, you could see that the clinical endpoint are improved for the target lesion, but if you look at the circuit, uh, patency, you know, it's not improved in that study and, and that study are unrolled and, and more patient than, than, than we, we did, you know? So I think that there are differences in, in, uh, in drug coated balloon. I think they're not all made equal. So I think it, it's, uh, you need to study a little, a little bit more, you know, uh, not only the study, but also what the device was used in the study. That's fair. And going back to, uh, which study you're referring to in terms of, uh, certain circuit patency, that was the Lutonix trial that you were talking about. Yes, exactly. The one which was okay. published in GVIR in 2020. Okay. And the other one for the impact trial was, that was New England Journal 2020. Exact. And I know you can't speak broadly to how everyone should be practicing, but can you speak to um, how this study and maybe some of the other evidence that's come out since you began the study in 2014, has your clinical practice changed? Oh, yes. We, our, our practice changed and we think that we should be using those, the, the, the DCB that, that proved to be effective in hemodialysis access more regularly. Actually, actually, at least in patients who require frequent intervention to maintain access permeability. This is our practice now. We, we, although we, we, can, we still cannot use the passivity in LUX in our center because it, it is not yet approved by Health Canada, but we, we do use another one, which is has proven to be very effective also. The Passio 18 LUX, also one of the limitations, if I remember from the study, uh, the diameter was seven millimeters, eight millimeters? Yes, exactly. The maximum diameter was seven millimeters. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, limit, that's a limitation, you're right. Yep. And uh, so, but from your practice now, you are usually drug eluting balloons and anecdotally, is, is this making a difference in terms of um, how often you're seeing patients, especially those patients that are known to you as to be frequent flyers and to come in regularly, have you noticed a decreased reintroduction? It's, it's, it's impossible, you know. Okay, it, okay. It, 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 <laughs> Well, listen, you know, it took us a, a randomized study to demonstrate something. Do you think that we, we could, we could just have a feeling of what, you know, it's very difficult, you know, it's very difficult. Well, that's fair. Yeah, that's, uh, that's wise. So as far as where you would like to see, uh, research go moving forward, what are some of the interesting things that you'd like to see in terms of hemodialysis and specifically drug eluting balloons and, and hemodialysis, like some of the things that, that to me jump out and I know that some people are, are looking at it is, you know, the economic impact of using DCBs. Well, the, the, uh, the DCBs now are provided by many uh, companies and I think that probably that the, the price will, will go down, you know, it's always the same with any technology in the beginning, it's very expensive. And then with time, the, the cost decrease and, and then the, the and it's probably already cost effective because if you, if you look at how much it costs to, to put a patient on, on the, on the angiographic table and then, uh, you know, do the angiogram and, uh, and everything, you know, it, it costs a lot, you know? So, uh, if, if your patient are coming every six to nine months and, and then that you, uh, you know, you, you, you can delay that for, for, for two, three months, I think it's, it's worth it. I think that's uh, a smart thing to to discuss or, or at least to mention that there's always some fixed cost just to putting a patient on the table, just to putting the patient on the table and coming in and then the price of drug eluding balloons as they become more widely available. I think that's just a, a smart thing to say and highlight in that there's a, a fixed cost to just strictly putting a patient on the table 
and doing official gram. And I think like uh, your point is well taken in that as drug eluting balloons become more widely available, um, the cost of that technology may go down. And so the, the cost effectiveness may continue to improve over time. In terms of, I, I just wanted to pick your brain about reference articles or articles that you thought might be helpful to understanding your paper. And I think there's always built-in required reading whenever you want to just understand someone's paper. Um, for your paper specifically, are there any other papers that you would recommend that you think either complement your paper very well or are, are necessary reading to understanding the background of like uh, drug-eluting balloons and their role in hemodialysis? Well, uh, actually, yes, yeah. the, the two ones that you uh, you brought, you know, are the, the main one, you know, the, the one about the Lutinix uh, that was published in GVIR in 2020 is a good one. And uh, and the one which was recently published in 2021 uh, in, uh, in New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the one by, from Luke Stein and, and, and R, you know, uh, are very good on manuscript and especially the, 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 the one in the New England, it's, it, it clearly shows, you know, that the, it showed the compelling evidence that of the efficacy of the drug codic balloon to prevent restenosis in hemodialysis access. Out of curiosity is, in ter- and I don't know how the healthcare payer system works in uh, Canada, but is there any kind of reimbursement or, or a change in the way you get reimbursed if you use uh, drug-eluting balloons for hemodialysis? <laughs> the system is completely different in Canada. You know, it's a public system. So in Canada, a patient is costing, uh, it costs something to the system in the U.S., the, a patient is is uh, is is giving money to the system, so it's that's not the same at all. But of course, in Canada, it's, we we have to use you know devices that clearly show that they either they are effective or or that they are cost effective, but at least effective. So uh, I'm happy to see those those manuscripts, you know, and those those publication that that clearly shows the the benefit of the uh, of this device, and and I'm pretty sure you know. Because I don't know how much you pay for those devices, but uh, the, the price we pay for the device, you know, I'm pretty sure that it's, it's cost effective. As you said, you know, just to put the patient on the table, and it costs a lot. And I remember, answer, just so I can take some time for you, but, you know, I remember uh, years ago when the, the first drug-coded stent uh, went on the market. And, oh, I don't know if you remember how much it cost, but uh, in, in my hospital, they, they cost 3000 to 4000 bucks a, a stent. And and do you know how much we pay for that now? You know, for 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 the latest version of uh, of of drug uh, coated stent uh, for a coronary uh, coated stent, now it's one hundred seventy six Canadian dollars. Just crazy, crazy. Wow. Well, hope to see the same thing with the drug eluding balloon uh, market. I don't know. Maybe not. The volume is not there. Sure, sure. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. There are a lot of hemodialysis. <laughs> There's a lot of hemodialysis access out there. <laughs> All right. Um, I think we covered a good topic today. Um, I know this was a, a break from our typical format, but it was something that we were excited to do. To our audience, thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed the show and you enjoy the podcast but want more, please check out the show notes of this episode. We're about one week out and putting out show notes to each episode. Those are always going to be found at www.backtable.com. We'll have links to any articles which were referenced during the show. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second, press the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. This helps us in so many different ways. Plus, we love the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much.